For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, we are nearing the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. Our text this morning is really the final bit of pastoral instruction that the apostle gives to Timothy in this letter. In the next paragraph, he will highlight his own fulfilling of his ministry, and then everything from there to the end of the letter is of a more personal nature. But it is still God-breathed as part of Scripture, and it contains uh, some lessons and some instruction for us that we'll get to in the coming weeks. But these verses that we have to deal with this morning contain that final bit of weighty or heavy instruction uh, in what we call the pastoral letters. And before we jump into it, we need to understand the significance of the first word of our text there in verse 3, for, or we might say, because. So what Paul is about to write in these three verses Uh, is the grounds for what came before. It's the reason for what he just said in the previous two verses. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, which we looked at last week, Paul gave a charge to Timothy. He charged him to preach the word, to preach the words of God from the Holy Scriptures, and to do so with patience, with dedication to teaching the doctrines of the scriptures. And that's necessary because of what he is about to say. What he said last week to preach the word, Timothy must do so because of what Paul is about to tell him in this verse. Now, I don't know uh, that Paul was explicitly being prophetic here. Uh, Maybe he was just being discerning, understanding the times and the hearts of men, and knew what was to come. I tend to think it was a little of both. But the times that he describes that are coming, for the time will come, uh, these times that he is describing pretty well sum up and describe the state of the world and the church, unfortunately, uh, since Paul's own day to ours. And so he says that Timothy must preach the word for the time will come when they will. Now, who's the they? Who is he talking about here? From the context, I think we must conclude that he is talking about people in the church. He's not talking about the world out there. He's talking about people who are sitting in the church He's speaking about those who profess to be Christians, those who are Christians, but are prone to wonder, to follow after the false teachers that he has been warning us so strongly against. In chapter 1, he spoke of those who had turned away from him because of their shame for his chains and his imprisonment. Then in chapter 2, he began to warn us concerning false teachers 
Their teaching, he said, is profane and ignorant in chapter 2, verse 16. It destroys those who listen to it in chapter 2, verse 14. It spreads like cancer in chapter 2, verse 17. It leads to more and more sin in chapter 2, verse 16. It generates strife in the church. In chapter 2, verse 23, which Brian just covered in CLA this morning, false doctrine generates strife. It must be corrected in chapter 2, verse 25. It has taken people captive to do the will of Satan in chapter 2, verse 26. And false teachers are ones who resist the truth in chapter 3, verse 8. Their teaching is full of deceptions and lies in chapter 3, verse 13. Therefore, because this false teaching is finding a home in the church, because people are listening to it, People are embracing it, acting on this false teaching, and it is leading them into sin. Therefore, the word must be preached. The antidote to false teaching is the bold but gentle proclamation of the truth. And so the they that Paul is talking about here in verse 3 are those who are in the church but have a tendency to listen to false teaching And so they're going to do three things, Paul says. Paul says in verse 3, for the time will come when they will, and then he, he says this three times, they will do something. The first thing that they will do, he says, is for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. So there's a bit of a play on words or ideas here. Throughout the letter, Paul has repeatedly exhorted Timothy and us, by way of extension, to endure hardship, to endure suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Now, he says, that the people will not endure sound doctrine. That is, they won't put up with it. They won't sit still for it. They won't tolerate it. As Brian discussed in CLA this morning, if they sit under the preaching of the word, they're not just going to sit there patiently and say, I have a disagreement with this but keep it to themselves. They won't endure it. They'll become impatient and chaff under the teaching of sound doctrine. And what does he mean by sound doctrine? We say that a lot, but do we understand what he means? Sound doctrine is doctrine that is healthy, doctrine that is without flaws or solid. My brother is a farrier. He shoes horses for a living. If a horse is having problems with his foot or his leg, they say that his foot is not sound. And after the problem has been corrected and the foot has healed up, they say that it is now sound or it's healthy. In the construction industry, we might talk about a building being sound, and that means that it is structurally solid. It does not have any major flaws in its structural integrity. So if someone gives you sound advice, that means they're giving you good advice that's well-reasoned and helpful. That's the sort of teaching that Paul is saying people will not endure. It's reasoned from the scriptures, as we spoke about last week. It is biblically correct. It is helpful for the church. It's healthy for believers, and they will not endure it. And notice that he doesn't say that they just simply won't heed it, they won't obey it. He doesn't say they'll sit there and hear it and just not do it. That's not what he says. He says they won't endure it. They won't tolerate it. They won't put up with it. 
It's not that they're going to sit there and listen and then discount it. No, they won't sit still for it. Instead, they're going to cause trouble. And the first bit of trouble that they will cause is that they won't not only not endure preaching and teaching of sound doctrine, but they will actively seek out teachers who teach otherwise, teachers who are doing the opposite. He says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will heap up teachers for themselves who say what they want to hear rather than the truth. They'll collect such teachers in abundance. That's what it means to heap them up, like having a mound of false teachers. And they do this to scratch the itch of their own desires. The King James says lusts, and again, it's not a reference to sexual lust, but simply to inordinate desire. They don't desire the truth of sound doctrine. They desire something else. So because of that desire for something other than the truth, anything other than the truth, they will accumulate to themselves false teachers who will scratch that itch. They don't want their ears filled with the truth, but only with that which accords with their own sinful desires. This could be the desire for novelty, as Paul previously mentioned earlier in the letter. It could be a desire to have their ego stroked rather than to be convicted and humbled under the truth of Scripture. It could be a desire to be affirmed in some sin which they simply enjoy or treasure. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 20, for everyone practicing evil, that is, everyone who is sinning, actively loving their sin, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So they won't endure sound doctrine, but rather they will gather to themselves teachers who will say what they want to hear to satisfy that sinful itch in their own ears. Now this could mean that they replace godly preachers in the church with preachers to suit their own desires. And we've seen the downgrade in the church in our own day, in the American church, as pastors preach sermons about how wonderful you are, what a treasure you are, how you can just claim a blessing from God and he'll give it to you, how God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The internet, of course, has made it possible for those who desire such teaching to heap up false teachers in a way that Paul probably could not have imagined. They may still be part of a church that has not landed at the bottom of this mudslide, but they can go online and heap up teachers according to their own desires, saying exactly what it is they want to hear on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and wherever else they can find them. Because of modern technology, people have the ability to heap up false teachers to themselves in an unprecedented way. And this is not a blessing. It's a curse. Listen to the words of John Gill, written some 300 years ago. He said, It is a curse upon a people when they are left to choose teachers after their heart's lusts. It's a curse. 
if they are left to choose teachers after their heart's lust. So those who heap up for themselves teachers according to their own sinful desires, what it is that they want to hear, who say only the things that scratch that itch in their sinful ears, they do themselves no favors. In fact, they're bringing a curse upon themselves. For not only do they do this because they won't tolerate the truth, but they also turn away from the truth. Paul continues, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. Again, they will not sit under sound teaching and simply pay it no mind. They will actively turn away from the truth. So that passage in the Gospel of John that I quoted just a moment ago, once again with a little more context, verses 20 and 21, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. He who does the truth. And so Jesus is equating the truth and the light together here. Turning from the light and turning from the truth are the same thing. What are they turning from? They're turning from Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So when they turn from the truth, they are turning away from Christ. This is almost as if the apostle is saying they are repenting of the truth. If you repent from sin, you turn your back on it. And you turn to face God. In fact, that's how the word is used in Acts 3. The same exact word in Acts 3, verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. That's repentance. Turned away from your iniquities and toward Christ. But in this case, they're turning away from God, away from Christ, away from the truth, and turning towards their sin. It's... We might call this an unholy repentance. They turn from the truth to embrace a lie. And when it says they turn their ears away from the truth, the Greek word here means to subvert or to pervert someone's allegiance. That is, to turn someone in the way that a spy is turned. They no longer have an allegiance to their home country or to their master or their lord. The Greek word is probably familiar to you. It's apostrepho, where we get our English word apostrophe. It's a turning. But it's also where we get our Greek word apostasy, or to apostatize, which means to renounce that which you once believed and to turn from it. In our day, in my generation, I cannot tell you how many people that I grew up with in church, solid Bible-believing churches who I now see online are deconstructing their faith. They don't say that they're apostatizing, but that's what they're doing. They are deconstructing their faith. They just don't want to admit it. They call themselves Christians, but they won't tolerate sound doctrine. You might say that they're doctrine intolerant, the way some people are lactose intolerant. Or as Hattie once said when she was a young child, She said that they uh, are are immune to the gospel. 
They have a gospel immunity. They've turned from the truth to a lie. And that is what Paul said they would do. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In turning from the truth, they become enslaved by lies. They are turned aside out of the way of truth into bypath meadow. The way seems easier there. After all, you don't have to feel conviction of your sins. You don't have to wrestle uh, to put your sins to death. It's much easier walking. But in the end, what happens to those who take Bypath Meadow? They end up imprisoned in Doubting Castle, suffering at the hands of giant despair. If you don't get the metaphors that I'm talking about, please go read Pilgrim's Progress. Other than your Bible, it's perhaps one of the most important books a Christian can read. But this is the fate of those who will not tolerate sound doctrine. They will be turned aside out of the way of truth to follow after lies. And they gather together teachers who will scratch that itch of their sinful desires. And now, by way of contrast, the apostle instructs Timothy in what he is to do. Those are, that, that is what people will do. People who will not endure sound doctrine will turn away their ears. They will be led to follow lies. But now he says to Timothy in verse 5, but you, but you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So the time will come when men will apostatize. Timothy was to preach the word, but he was also to do these four things. First, he is to be watchful in all things. Now, one of the primary metaphors for the role of the pastor is that of a shepherd. In fact, that's where the word pastor comes from. It's the Greek word uh, that means shepherd, transliterated into English, uh, and it's translated as pastor. And we find it used that way in classic English literature. You might read a description of a scene on an English estate, and it describes it as a pastoral setting. It doesn't mean that there are pastors out wandering around on the estate. It means that there are rolling hills of green. There may be some sheep out there grazing, maybe a a shepherd or a pastor watching over them. It's a pastoral scene. So the shepherd's job is to keep a watchful eye on the flock to prevent the sheep from wandering off alone, getting lost or injured but also to spot predators and to be able to drive them away in order to protect the sheep. And so when Paul tells Timothy to be watchful in all things, that's what he's telling him to do. Like a shepherd watching over a flock, be alert, keep your eyes open, keep an eye on the sheep, be aware of who the people are listening to. What, how is the gospel being perverted in your day? What is the popular misconstruction of the gospel that people might be subject to? Be vigilant. Now, one thing about this sort of watchfulness to which Paul is instructing Timothy is that you have to keep awake. You have to keep your senses alert. You can't get drowsy Oh, you can't start daydreaming and not pay attention. You're going to miss something. So pastors, elders are supposed to be alert and discerning. 
They must stay engaged. They must know uh, what the culture is teaching and how the gospel is being twisted by the culture around us. Now, if you're not an elder, this principle still applies. It applies to husbands. It applies to parents, grandparents, and even to the individual believer. We should all keep our senses alert and be watchful to see that we and those who are under our care don't begin to drift into error desiring only to hear what appeals to us, what scratches the itch in our ears rather than the truth. The second thing that Paul instructs Timothy to do should be familiar to you by now, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions. This has been one of the main themes of the letter. All Christians, but especially pastors, must stand ready to endure hardship. We're to be ready and equipped like a soldier who is ready with all of his gear, prepared for a long campaign. As we said last week, sanctification is a process. Parents must be prepared to disciple and nurture their children over the course of years. Pastors must be prepared to preach and teach sound doctrine over the course of time. They must patiently bear with those who are weak in the faith and struggle to keep up, and they must constantly correct those who stray into error. Any of you who have raised kids know what I'm talking about. You know how tiring and exhausting and sometimes discouraging and disappointing it can be to attempt to disciple someone over the course of a long number of years. But that is the calling. When Jesus told us to go and make disciples... He didn't say it would be easy or quick. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, but he didn't tell us that it'll only take three months or only take three years. It's a lifetime calling. It calls for us to lay down our own life and dedication to the task. Parents must give of themselves for 18 plus years. I don't know, even adult children sometimes. Parents continue to give of themselves. The Christian who would disciple another in the faith must be willing to give of their own life for the sake of making disciples. The pastor must preach the word, Paul said, with all long-suffering. The task takes time. It's not always easy. Near the end of his ministry, Paul had the opportunity to meet with the elders from this church in Ephesus where Timothy is stationed uh, and he gave them some instructions uh, as he is headed, he is under arrest now, he's headed towards Jerusalem. Um, he knows that he is uh, nearing the end of his ministry and so he calls the Ephesian elders to him in Acts chapter 20. And it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except 
that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that the chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's ministry was met with a lot of affliction that he endured for the sake of Christ and the spread of the gospel. And then he says this to the elders at the church there in Ephesus, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Night and day. Day in and day out over the course of years preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God at every opportunity. And Paul tells them, work still isn't finished. You must continue to watch. You must continue to teach the whole counsel of God day in and day out, night and day. It's difficult work, and there will be opposition. It will exhaust you, but it is the work to which we have been called as parents, as elders in the church as Christians who would obey the Great Commission. Now we come to one of the more difficult phrases in this letter. The third thing that Paul tells Timothy to do is that he is to do the work of an evangelist. Now, the easy part first, do the work. This is a combination of words that means to bear fruit or produce or produce good works or deeds. Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the same word, works, good works. And then in Ephesians 4, which we're going to talk about more in just a moment, we're told that Christ gave some to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So that's what Paul is saying here. Do the good works of the ministry to which Timothy has been called. That's what he has in mind. He tells Timothy to do that work. The word do there means to bear fruit or produce. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Matthew 7, 17, it's the same word. The tree produces fruit after its kind. So Timothy is to produce good works in keeping with the ministry to which he has been called. And that work is the work of an evangelist. Now here's where things get a little tricky. What does he mean? What does it mean to do the work of an evangelist? Now we use that word evangelist and evangelism to mean certain things, but what does Paul mean? As we said last week when he said preach the word, we had to clearly define what preaching is. 
that it requires speaking, right? You can't preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. No, you have to use words. That's what preaching is. So we have to clearly define this. What does Paul mean when he says, do the work of an evangelist? Is he speaking of a spiritual gift that Timothy has, that some of us might have, and reminding Timothy, use your gift? Is that what he is saying? Or is this a work that all believers are called to, to evangelize the lost? Or is this specifically a calling for pastors to evangelize the lost? Or, as some have posited, is this an office in the church or in the kingdom, the office of evangelist? Well, I think the answer is a qualified yes to all of those questions. The word's only used three times in the New Testament, this word evangelist. It's used here in this text in Acts 21.8 in reference to Stephen and in Ephesians 4, verse 11. Now, I want to address all four of those questions. Was this a spiritual gift? Did Timothy have the gift of evangelism? Well, some people believe so. Uh, We could read Ephesians 4 and conclude that this is talking about a spiritual gift of evangelism. Uh, Evangelism is not mentioned in the other lists of spiritual gifts. So depending on how you read Ephesians 4, if you read that as a list of spiritual gifts, there may be a gift of evangelism that Timothy has. Um, But Paul's using the word a little different, I think, in our text. He says, do the work of an evangelist, almost like a title. Doing the work of an evangelist wouldn't necessarily require a spiritual gift. Timothy might have a spiritual gift of evangelism, but I don't think that's what Paul is referencing here. So is this simply a call for Timothy to do the work of evangelizing? Now, well, that's how we use the word evangelizing or evangelism, the work that all Christians ought to do. Now, I don't think there's any dispute that all Christians ought to be doing the work of evangelizing, sharing our faith with those who have not yet heard and believed the gospel. We're called to be witnesses to the work of Christ in our own hearts and in the world. Acts 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, the inclusion of the uttermost part of the earth indicates that this applies to all believers and not just the first generation who were gathered there in Jerusalem. So we have all received the Spirit. We have all been called to be witnesses to Christ and His work of salvation. The Great Commission applies to the church Catholic or universal down through the ages, not just to the first generation of the church. So the work of evangelizing the nations in the sense of spreading the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, is our work. It's work that we have been called to do. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here in 2 Timothy. The reason I say that is that the entire letter is completely focused on the work of pastoring the church in Ephesus, defending the church against false teachers, making disciples of those under his care, and raising up future leaders to be elders in the church. It would be odd in this context to all of a sudden switch to a call for Timothy to leave the church and go out in the streets to evangelize the lost. It just wouldn't fit the context. So whatever Paul means, I think the context demands that it is work that is done in the church. So now, does that mean that he 
is thinking of something akin to a book that I have on my shelf. It's a book that has been quite popular in the last several decades in seminaries. It's called The Pastor Evangelist by a guy named Roger Greenway. In his book, he writes this, The pastor evangelist is always looking out for lost souls. He goes out of his way to look for them. He sees to it that there is an evangelistic tone to all his teaching and preaching. He knows that there are children who have not yet committed their hearts to God. He knows that in every audience there may be unsaved, though professing, church members. And often there are non-members listening in. The pastor evangelist keeps all of these in mind, and he is particularly solicitous of those whose minds and hearts have been bruised and tormented by sin. Sometimes he has to turn a deaf ear for a while to the clamor of the sheep pen in order to go out looking for the lost and bring them home. The entire book is predicated on the idea uh, that that is the correct understanding of this text in 2 Timothy. And I don't dispute that a pastor should keep these things in mind while preaching. There are unregenerate people who will be listening in. Perhaps they will hear the gospel and understand it and believe, be convicted. But I don't agree that the pastor should turn a deaf ear to the sheep pen in order to go out searching for the lost. That would be to leave his post. It would be dereliction of duty. He has been called to tend the sheep which includes what Greenway might call evangelistic preaching in the church. But the pastor has not been called to leave the sheep unattended. I think he's overstating his case. But notice how he's using the word evangelist and evangelism. As I said, definitions are important. Words have meaning. We've taken this word evangelist and turned it uh, into uh, multiple different words, evangelize, evangelism, all of these things. But those words are not used in the text of Scripture. Evangelist is used three times. And then the root word from which it comes is used a multitude of times. By evangelism, we mean sharing our faith or telling others the good news of Jesus Christ, of his substitutionary death on the cross, of his resurrection from the grave, that we might have new life by faith in him and be saved. That's what we mean when we talk of evangelism, sharing the gospel with others. And that is a good thing, but I'm not convinced that's how Paul is using the word here. Evangelist, like I said, is an English word. It first appears in the English language in the year 1611, translation of the King James Bible. Evangelist is a transliteration of a Greek word, much like the word baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. Evangelist is a transliteration of the Greek word evangelistes, which comes from the root word evangelon, which means good news. So everywhere in the New Testament, in your English Bible, where you see the word gospel, it's the Greek word evangelion. So evangelist is simply a gospel man, a good news man, someone who speaks the gospel, someone who speaks the good news. So what Paul literally says to Timothy in this passage is to do the work of a gospel man to do the work of one whose life is dedicated to the good news of Jesus Christ. So what does he mean by that? 
Well, I think he means two things. First, I think he simply means that Timothy, in his work in the church, pastoring, shepherding, raising up the next generation of elders is to keep his focus on Christ. Paul himself had done this throughout his ministry. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. Paul clearly kept Christ as the focal point of his teaching ministry in all of the churches to which he went, and he is calling Timothy to do the same. He wants him, as all preachers ought to be, to be a gospel man, to be about preaching Christ. Throughout the letter, he has warned Timothy of the dangers of the the lies that the false teachers believe, and he is encouraging Timothy to keep bringing people back to Christ, turn them back to Christ. Don't get caught up in the fables, the worthless genealogies, all of the arguments that they might want to engage in that are foolish, keep bringing them back to Jesus. So that's the first thing that I think he means when he tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, do the work of a gospel man. But secondly, I think when he tells Timothy to do the work of evangelist, that he means something more than that as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 says, And he himself, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He gave some to be. And then he lists five things or four, depending on how you count. It doesn't say that he gave some the gift of. It says he gave some to be. He gave the individual as a gift to the church in order to fulfill a role. So I take these to be offices or callings in the church. Christ has given some men to the church to fulfill these offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Now some read pastor and teacher as one role, and so they only see four there. But some today, in what is known as the New Apostolic Reformation, see these five things and think that we need to restore these five uh, offices to the church. They call it the fivefold ministry. Uh, They believe that these offices are all active today, and so they have apostles and prophets and evangelists in their churches. Now, this falls flat on its face when we examine how the Scripture defines what an apostle is to someone who was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Christ in the flesh and directly commissioned by him in the flesh. The apostle Paul calls himself the least of the apostles as one untimely born. He was likely in Jerusalem studying under his rabbi master during Christ's earthly ministry. He was probably an eyewitness to some of it, He did meet the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and was commissioned by him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And there is no one alive who can say that much today, let alone to say that they walked with Christ for three years and were taught by him. 
So there are no more apostles. Elsewhere, we're told, as Brian quoted this morning in CLA, that the foundation of the church is built upon the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Well, you lay a foundation once, and then you move on. You don't keep laying the foundation over and over again. No more apostles, no more prophets. The foundation has been laid. The scriptures are sufficient, as we have discussed the last several weeks. Now, pastors, we obviously have now. It's a continuing ministry in the church today. Paul had instructed Timothy here in this letter uh, to raise up faithful men who would be able to teach others also. I would submit to you that he's talking about training elders. In his first letter to Timothy, in his letter to Titus, he gives explicit instructions about the role of the elder or the pastor, the requirements for the office. Now, teachers can be pastors, but they don't have to be. All elders are called to be able to teach, but not all who are able to teach are necessarily pastors. Our confession clearly says this in chapter 26 of the church, paragraph 11, although it be incumbent on the bishops or pastors of the churches to be instant in preaching the word by way of office, yet the work of preaching the word of is not so peculiarly confined to them, but that others also gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit for it and approved and called by the church may and ought to perform it. And so there is a gift of teaching, but the particular Baptists in England recognized a calling to preach, but not necessarily to pastor. They called these men in their other writings gifted brethren or teachers. They held no authority in the church as elders, but they were approved and called by the church to preach and teach the gospel. Now that leaves us with evangelists. Now the way we use the word today and what we mean by it is actually very close to what our particular Baptist forefathers meant by gifted brethren. They might preach in the church, but they might preach out in the open air somewhere, in a field, in the city market, or on the streets. They reserved the word evangelist for another use, one that they believed, as I do, is what Paul intended here in 2 Timothy. So listen to Nehemiah Cox, one of our particular Baptist forefathers, likely one of the two men responsible for editing our confession. He was the pastor of a church in London known as Petty France Church, which would change names several times and later be known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle, pastored by Charles Spurgeon. Cox is a very important voice in our history as Reformed Baptists. He said this concerning evangelists. The evangelists were extraordinary ministers, though inferior to the apostles, and did usually attend the motion and direction of the apostles as assistants to them in preaching the gospel and setting the churches in due order when first planted. And though Titus is not expressly called an evangelist, yet if we consider his employment and compare this epistle to him with those written to Timothy, who is particularly charged to do the work of an evangelist, we shall have no reason to doubt their being both in the same capacity. And they acted not as diocesan bishops in their particular charge, but were sometimes employed in one part of the world and sometimes in another, as the service of the gospel required their attendance. And since the ceasing of these extraordinary offices and the completing of the canon of the New Testament, all church offices and affairs are to be regulated and guided by the ordinary and standing rule of the Scripture. And then he goes on to deal with elders and deacons. 
Now, the particular Baptists were not alone in their understanding of this passage. Here's Matthew Henry, Puritan pastor. The office of the evangelist was as the apostles' deputies to water the churches that they had planted. They were not settled pastors, but for some time resided in and presided over the churches that the apostles had planted till they were settled under a standing ministry. This was Timothy's work. Even the first generation of reformers had understood this passage in the same way. Calvin writes in his commentary, from Ephesians 4.11, it is clearly evident that this was an intermediate class between apostles and pastors, so that the evangelists ranked as assistants next to the apostles. It is also more probable that Timothy, whom Paul had associated with himself as his closest companion in all things, surpassed ordinary pastors in rank and dignity of office than that he was only one of their number. Besides, to mention an honorable title or office tends not only to encourage him, but to recommend his authority to others. And Paul had in view both of these objects. So all of these men in the history of the church have interpreted this passage in 2 Timothy to be in reference to an office that was held by the the apostolic assistants, Timothy, Titus, Philip, and others. My point is that the historic understanding of the word evangelist, as referred to here in Timothy and Titus, is that they were assistants to the elders. They were gospel men sent to the churches to help strengthen the churches, to correct errors, to refute false teaching, and as Paul wrote to Titus, to set in order the things that are lacking. So Paul reminds Timothy of this calling, of his office as an apostolic assistant. He is to be a man whose life is dedicated to the good news of Jesus Christ. And as if to reiterate the point, Paul then says, fulfill your ministry. Discharge it completely. Notice Paul doesn't tell Timothy to fulfill someone else's ministry, but to to fulfill his own ministry. Do the work of a gospel man. Fulfill your ministry. So the question that this leaves us with then is what has God called you to? He hasn't called you to be an apostolic assistant in Ephesus, but he has called you to something. Maybe he's called you to be an elder or a deacon. Maybe he has called you to be a song leader or a pianist. Maybe he has called you to be a parent or a grandparent. Maybe he has called you, as he had many of the Thessalonians, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Maybe he has called you to be a member of a local church, like this one or another, to support the ministry of that church through prayer, faithful attendance, encouragement of the leaders. But whatever he has called you to, fulfill your ministry, not the ministry of another. This is especially important for Timothy. Paul is at the end of his life. His ministry is coming to an end. There is no apostolic succession. Timothy doesn't step into Paul's shoes. Timothy has a ministry. He is to fulfill his ministry, not Paul's. Paul fulfilled his ministry. Timothy is to fulfill his. We also ought to be content with the ministry that the Lord has called us to and strive to fulfill it with watchfulness over our own soul, with a willingness to endure hardship, which may be nothing more than the drudgery of another sink full of dirty dishes or another lawn that needs to be mowed or another sermon or lesson that needs to be prepared. But we are to do the work to which we have been called with faithfulness and diligence to present ourselves to God as those who do not need to be ashamed 
because we have fulfilled our ministry, our service to him, our Lord and King. Let's pray.